0: Amen. while you're still standing, if you'll turn to Zephaniah chapter 1, we're going to pick up in verse 7, and we'll read through chapter 2, verse 3, as we take this section as a whole together. Uh, You'll notice as we read, this is a heavy section, uh, emphasis on God's judgment, His wrath, His holiness, and verse 7 tells us how we should read it, uh, when it says, Be silent before the Lord, God. And so let's be silent before him as we hear his word and see his holiness. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire on that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O oh inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps And I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered, and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust. And their flesh like dung, neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed, for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Gather together, yes gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, Before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commandments, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Lord God, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. May we see your holiness and justice and judgment, but I pray that we would see your mercy in Jesus Christ displayed. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. How can one historical event generate different responses? In a people. You know, one event happens to a group of people, and the way people respond is, is very different, right? A few years back, uh, in our recent memory, we could think in this valley of the Almeida fires uh, just south of us. Uh, many of us affected. Uh, I remember that weekend well as we were reaching out to people in the church, and some were right up at the fire line. Uh, some obviously lost uh, home uh, during the fires. And and you have this event that affects a whole valley. And uh, many good things came out of it. I mean, you saw people coming together. If you drive through Phoenix now, uh, even using that image of a phoenix rising from the ashes, uh, there's a beautiful sense in which uh, disaster even can bring out the best, even just on a humankind level, right? And yet, all these years later, our valley is is still the valley. Uh, There are many who love Christ. There are many who hate Christ, still, in this valley. One thing can happen, and some can be hardened in their views, and some can be softened. When God allows, or indeed brings about judgment, difficulty, hardship on a people, we're going to see that here in Zephaniah, but in a principal way, this applies to us as well. When God does this, he has two purposes at the same time. To manifest his judgment and his wrath upon those who would reject him. And to manifest his mercy, his salvation, his willingness to grow his people, to make their heart his own, even as they live through these difficult times. And so just as God has two purposes at the same time, there tends to be two responses. One is to harden the heart. And, and, and reject the Lord, if that's you this morning, that means that you are, if you experience hardship in this life, it is just a small foretaste of the judgment to come. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you might taste of that same hardship here in this life, uh, but for you, it's not judgment, but it's discipline. Uh, for you, it's a Father loving you, caring for you, shaping your heart, making it His own, so that one day Uh, it's but a foretaste of the salvation to come in Jesus Christ. A friend, I pray that you would be in the latter category this morning. Uh, Even through the work of this sermon, if you would put your faith in Jesus Christ, then the hardship you face is not a foretaste of destruction to come, uh, but of the mercy to come. So let's approach this text in Zephaniah. And you could see on uh, your outline, if, if you're following in the bulletin, Uh, We have a little bit of groundwork to lay. Um, You might have noticed this when you come to the prophets, um, whether it's Zephaniah or maybe you've gotten to Isaiah before and uh, make it about 20 chapters in and and thinking, what is happening here? Um, What I love about uh, the minor prophets, and we call them minor prophets simply because they're smaller, it's sort of a funny way of talking about them. Um, But what I love about these shorter prophets is you have in miniature what you see in the larger prophets. And so you have God's judgment, you have God's restoration of his people, you have pointing forward to Christ the Messiah coming, uh, you have the day of the Lord, which we'll talk about today, but you have it in miniature. So you can, within three chapters of Zephaniah, you could see all of those movements. And that can sort of train you so that when you get to Isaiah and you have 10 chapters of judgment and then 10 chapters of restoration... You say, okay, I know these categories. I've seen them before. And so throughout this series, we're offering a few tips. How do you read the prophets? Uh, And it really does snowball. The more you read the prophets and understand some of these categories, you say, oh, I, I see what's happening here in Joel, or I see what's happening in Jeremiah. And so we looked last week. Uh, We'll review tip number one just to set where we're at in the timeline. And then we'll spend a little bit of time on this tip number two, understanding the day of the Lord. Uh, And then I think we could read Zephaniah 1 correctly as we understand what he's saying. So, number one, the tip was know your timeline. Uh, This is true of any biblical book, but maybe perhaps uh, most acute in the prophets, uh, because you have a prophet who's speaking to a people. Uh, he's, he's talking about judgment that's going to happen, perhaps very soon. You really have to have a, a basic sense of where are we at on the timeline. Um, and even those who are, who are more studied in this, uh, when you come to a book like Zephaniah, you have to do a little bit of review. Uh, your Bible might even have some great resources in the back, a, a chart that shows you these things or your study Bible. Having good study resources is, is so key. But just to remind us uh, where we're at. If we think of King David uh, being really this pinnacle, the, uh, the best king of Israel, not perfect, still sinful, he passes the kingdom to his son Solomon, and very soon after, things begin to fall apart, as it were. By 930 BC, uh, the kingdom splits. Uh, you have the northern kingdom of Israel, you have the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, and you might know where Jerusalem sits not in Israel in the north and those 10 tribes but in the south uh, with Judah the very tribe of David from whom Christ would come one day and you have this if you've ever read through first and second kings or first and second chronicles your head probably spins as it tells you about the next king of Israel and then the next king of Judah and you're thinking, oh, this king seems pretty good. Oh, but no, he led the people in idolatry just like his fathers. You start to just tally mark, and there's more tally marks on the bad king side, especially in the northern, king, in the northern kingdom. In the southern kingdom, you have some good kings every once in a while. We'll talk about Josiah. Uh, but you, you still, the tally marks are heavily favoring bad kings, idolatrous kings. This continues despite the prophet's warnings until Israel is brought into exile in 722 B.C. Judah does not repent, uh, but as we'll see by 586 B.C., the very events that Zephaniah is talking about. um, You know, if you look at verse 10, he talks about the fish gate, the second quarter, the inhabitants of the mortar. He's describing Jerusalem, and he's saying judgment is coming upon Jerusalem. Uh, We know in hindsight in 586 BC. So that Zephaniah is writing, uh, even after the Josiah, this good king, he brought about many reforms in the people, and yet idolatry remained. Sin remained. They were still rejecting their God as a whole. And so Zephaniah is writing to them to say, judgment is coming, so how will you respond? Babylon's coming. How will you respond? That's Zephaniah's message in many ways. And our section today focuses on this concept of the day of the Lord. Just glance at those verses. Can you see that phrase pop up over and over again? Be silent before the day, uh, before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Uh, The day of the Lord. Uh, Let's get a brief concept of what is this day of the Lord. And then I think we can read Zephaniah. Uh, rightly. You know, it's interesting, any time you're reading a certain genre or even watching a, a certain genre, uh, there are certain things that can unlock it for you. Um, uh, I remember Amy and I were watching uh, something and, and we were sort of scratching our heads. And, and at one point, Amy turned to me and, and said, are we supposed to take this character seriously or is it meant to be sort of funny? And I was like, I think it's meant to be funny. And then we loved it. (laughs) Uh, But before that, it was like, what is happening in front of our eyes right now? Um, Sometimes you need those things that unlock it. The day of the Lord is one of those concepts. Once you start to see it, you see it all throughout the prophets. Let me give a definition that might not make sense, and then we'll flesh it out. Uh, The day of the Lord is the expected final coming of the kingdom of God at the end of time that's often anticipated in particular historical events in the life of God's people, it's the once-for-all coming at the very end of time. We would say Christ's second coming, but it's often anticipated in smaller ways in 586 B.C., Jerusalem, or other events in the life of God's people. So you have the day and capitals, and these smaller days of the Lord. Some biblical examples would be like Joel 1:15, "Alas for that day! For the day of the Lord is near." And as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Sounds very similar to Zephaniah, right? Or Amos 5, 18 through 20. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. It is darkness and not light. So you see in those texts, and there are many others. If you just Googled the day of the Lord and the prophets, you'd get many other examples. Uh, Let me just speak of a couple sets of, of two sides. Um, as we think about the day of the Lord. As we've already said, there's, there's two sides to this day of the Lord, when the prophets speak of it. On the one side of the coin, you have God's judgment. And on the other side of the same coin, you have his blessing or his salvation. And, and you begin to see both, right? I mean, think of in our text here, look at verse 15 again. It's a day of wrath, distress, anguish, ruin, devastation, darkness, gloom, thick darkness. Uh, The accent mark in Zephaniah 1 is this side of the coin, the judgment that is to come, uh, both on Jerusalem and then one day at the end of time. Uh, But we've been looking at the end of Zephaniah in our call to worship. uh, Zephaniah 3.16, On that day, same language, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let your hands not grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will who will save you see within this one little book you have both God's judgment and his salvation coming indeed the old testament ends with malachi 4 5 through 6 behold i will send you elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the lord comes and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the children to the f- fathers lest i come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction and of course that's picked up in our new Testaments. So you have two sides. Every time you see the day of the Lord, judgment and mercy, or judgment and salvation, judgment and blessing. And then another set of two, there's two time frames, and we've talked about these before. There's a now and there's a not yet. What's the emphasis at first in this Zephaniah passage? It's on the now. People of God, Jerusalem will fall. It's coming very soon. Can you imagine hearing these words from Zephaniah? Uh, verse 10, a, a cry will be heard from the fish gate and from the, a wail from the second quarter. Wail, inhabitants of the mortar. I mean, imagine if you lived in those areas of Jerusalem. All the traitors who are no more, all, all who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps. I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good. He will not do ill. This is the immediate um, judgment that's going to come upon Jerusalem. But look at verse 17. He shifts and says, I will bring distress on not just Jerusalem, but what? Upon mankind, so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned. Or at the end of verse 18, for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The Earth. This is sort of a tricky concept, but you you start to see the prophets tend to talk about something that's coming very soon. So for us, it's past tense; it happened, uh, but it sort of just spills over into the day of the Lord to come. And often it's just intermingled. Uh, here it's a little bit more broken up, but often the prophet will be speaking of Jerusalem, and and then he'll think of the second coming, and and it's sort of mixing up together. Um, uh, there's a sense in which the prophets had, had the big picture, but they didn't always have the exact sequence of events. They were seeing often things almost as one great day of the Lord. Uh, it would be like if you were uh, hiking and, and, and you see the next uh, crest over the mountains, and from that perspective, it just looks like that's it, like that's the mountain I'm climbing up. Uh, but as you get closer to it and when you crest over the hill, you realize there's a, a bigger mountain just beyond it. That when you, when you think about it, when you looked back, that other mountain, you could see the tip of it, <laughs> uh, especially if it was, you know, spewing a smoke, right? And from your vantage point initially, it all gets mixed up together. Uh, so the, Zephaniah, speaking of Jerusalem, it just pours into this day to come, this judgment to come. And the same dynamic happens in our New Testament. Remember Jesus' words when he shows up on the scene, "The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel." What's the Old Testament say thinking? The day of the Lord has come. Judgment on God's enemies, salvation for God's people, all of it." Does that start to help make sense? Remember in our Gospel of Luke, how many times the disciples were like, "Is this it? Are you going to bring fire down on them, Jesus? Is this it? Is Jerusalem going to get swallowed up? Are you going to kick out the Romans and establish your kingdom? I mean, they were thinking all of it is going to happen in this one day. But there's sort of a now and the not yet. Jesus comes and says, repent and believe in the gospel. He ushers what we call the day of salvation, of which we're still in, as we await that day to come, the second coming of Christ With that in mind, let's look at this text again. This day of the Lord, two time frames, now and not yet, judgment and mercy, and therefore two responses that we could give. We could harden our hearts or we could have our hearts changed and made the Lord's more fully. Remember verses 7 through 9 as he opens. Just hear the brutal nature of these words. Be silent before the Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. What does he say the Lord is doing? The, the Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And at first you're thinking, Old Testament Sat, you're thinking temple, sacrifice, sacrifices are good. It's how we come to the Lord. But it, you start to realize, wait, what is God talking about? What sacrifice? He says, And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons, all who array themselves in foreign Tyre, who who is the sacrifice? But Jerusalem itself, her leaders, her kings, her officials, those who are giving their hearts away to foreign dignitaries and gods. We're not quite sure what leaps over the threshold means, but it, it probably has something to do with idolatrous worship. Those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. God says, I am preparing a sacrifice. Verses 10 through 13, we've already looked at briefly. This is really Jerusalem uh, being uh, called to judgment. Babylon will come. If you've studied siege warfare at all, in any point in human history, it's horrific. You, you basically wait out a people. And that's what happened to Jerusalem. And look at God's active role. At that time, I will search, this is verse 12, I will search Jerusalem with lamps God's searching. He knows the hearts of the people. There's nowhere to hide. I will punish the men who are complacent. You might have a footnote there that says, um, you could, the Hebrew is a thickening on the dregs of their wine. Uh, The image is complacency. The image is if if you let wine, especially in those days, sit for long enough, the, the sediments would all fall to the bottom and and the men of Jerusalem the unfaithful it, it's like they've just sort of settled in they're not ready for God's judgment they're complacent they say the lord will not do good nor will he do ill not so much denying his presence but or his reality but the lord won't really do anything he's not active But verse 13 says their goods will be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. And and again, if you're an Old Testament saint, you're thinking of Deuteronomy 28. Where God makes a covenant with his people and he pronounces blessings upon them. If they would follow him, but verse 15 says, But if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all of his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall be you in the city, and cursed shall be you in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock." Cursed shall be you when you come in and cursed shall be you when you go out. Do you see that echoed in verse 13? The ground's not going to produce for you. So many years after Deuteronomy 28 was given, this is just an outworking of exactly what God said would happen. If you follow after other gods, judgment will come upon you. It's been said that the prophets in one sense are like covenant lawyers. All they're doing is reminding the people of, well, not just Deuteronomy, but especially Deuteronomy, the first five books, and saying, people of God, God, this isn't a surprising thing. God is doing what he said he would do, and it's coming about now in your day. So that in Zephaniah, it is coming. It's not repent so that this won't happen to Jerusalem. It is coming. In fact, verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. You could say, even the mighty man cries aloud in fear, a day of wrath, distress, anguish, ruin, devastation, darkness, gloom, clouds, and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. This is a day of wrath a day that is hastening fast for them, very literally in 586. But the day of the Lord, when Christ comes with a sword in his hand, is near and hastening fast. It is nearer than it was for them. It is nearer to us now. And so we see in verses 17 and 18, the day of the Lord in that not yet sense. Distress on mankind, they will walk around like they're blind blood being poured out, their flesh being poured out. Uh, Look at this prophetic word for our day, right? Verse 18, Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Friend, would you hear This word of the Lord, your silver nor your gold, your status, your intelligence, any of it, will be able to deliver you on that great day of the Lord when he makes a full and sudden end of all the inhabitants of the earth. This is the future promise to all those who would reject Jesus Christ, who would continually put him off and say, the Lord will not do good, the Lord will not do ill. I'm going to live my life. I'll even do the best I can to be a moral person. But if you would reject Christ, and to be complacent toward him is to reject him, if you would reject Christ, then any suffering you experience in this life, anything like the Omeda fires or things that affect a whole community, for you, it's simply a foretaste, a small foretaste of eternal damnation to come. If you would reject Christ. Sure, you may flourish in this life on a human level. You may even escape some of these judgments. You might just happen to live somewhere where a fire doesn't sweep through. You may even die, quote, old and happy. But you will not escape the great day of the Lord when it comes. You will actually have to answer to Christ himself one day. When he looks you in the eye and says, why have you rejected me? why did you not accept the grace that I purchased on the cross for all those who believe in me? The only way that you will be saved from the wrath to come, the bitter anguish of that day, is to turn to Christ, who on the cross took bitter anguish, who took a full and sudden and bitter wrath upon himself, which you deserved and I deserved, so that all those who believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. So that all those who believe in him, even though we might experience suffering and persecution, now it's not judgment, but it's discipline. He's growing us. He's making our heart his own. And one day we will be delivered from all wrath, all, judge, all judgment, all hardship. Friend, that's a promise for you if you would put your faith in Jesus Christ. That's why he brings Zephaniah chapter 1, to you this morning to open your eyes and to put your faith in Him. That day, or even the smaller days of God's judgment, are are nothing but wrath for the wicked. Uh, That was point number one for your outline, sorry. (laughs) A day of wrath for the wicked. Number two, that same days in history and the same day at the end of time is a day of salvation for the faithful a day of salvation for the faithful. And I choose the word faithful purposely, not a day of salvation for the innately more moral or the smarter or those of us who figured it out on our own. No, the faithful, those who are full of faith in Jesus Christ. Look at verses 1 through 3. You see, God's heart in this passage is certainly to lay out His wrath, the judgment to come, to warn those. But He has a heart for His people that they would wake up. In verses, uh, chapter two, gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commandments. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden, On the day of the anger of the Lord. What are God's people to do? Imagine you're living in this time. And again, the message isn't repent and Jerusalem will be spared. For a while, that was the message. That's not the message anymore. Jerusalem will not be spared, people of God. You will go into exile. And yet, He's talking to a faithful remnant here. How then will they live? And you can start to see, as, as foreign as Zephaniah and the people he's writing to, it seems so foreign to us, many centuries, different situation, but you could start to see some similarities, can you not? Though different in many ways, we'll talk about that more next week, uh, there's some shocking similarities. Uh, do we also not face historical judgments that are smaller compared to the day, uh, but God's uh, wrath and judgment coming upon a people? Is wickedness not on the rise around us? Uh, Do we not face economic hardship, political unrest? Well, God's purpose then and now, where do we start? We said He always has two purposes, well, manifold, but two main purposes in bringing about hardship on a people Uh, it is to show His judgment and wrath, and to harden the hearts of those who would reject Him, and it's to show His mercy and salvation, and soften the hearts of those who belong to Jesus Christ, and shape the hearts of those that belong to Jesus Christ. And so he says, seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. Cast off all idols, cast off everything else. Seek the Lord. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Even now, people of God, Whether you're thinking of the hardship that we face on on some level as a collective people or the hardship that you are personally facing, don't waste it because God's purpose in your hardship is that he would have your heart and all of it. So don't just try to get through it. Ask God to use it to shape your heart, that you would seek him. During the height of the age of sailing, ships would... Legally fly, uh, legally fight sorry, only while they were flying their uh, national flag. Uh, striking the colors was a sign of surrender. Indeed, this was so much ingrained that when a shot of shrapnel uh, felled a ship's flag, such as by severing the rope that held it up, her opponent would actually cease firing and inquire whether she was capitulating. So if the flag went down, they would stop and say, "Are they surrendering?" In contrast, nailing your colors to the mast uh, was a practice in which the sailors would literally take the flag if it was falling apart and nail it down, pin it down to the mast to prevent it from being removed easily and effectively prevent the surrender. It became an expression of defiance and willingness to force oneself to fight to the bitter end, uh, to show where your loyalties lied, even to death. Christian, Nail your colors to the mast. Seek the Lord. Love Him with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. That's not just a metaphor. He wants all of it. Your heart, soul, mind, strength, time, prayers, loves, focus, goals, dreams, trust. Nail your colors to the mast. Declare who you belong to, so that even if you face hardship in this life, it will be for your good, because the God who works everything for good, shaping us into the image of his son, will shape your heart to be his very own. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, that indeed your word is like a sharp two-edged sword, we need it to be, Lord. Forgive us for our complacency. Forgive us for our slumbering. Forgive us for living as if you were not our Lord and King and Master and greatest love and greatest treasure. I pray that our hearts would be yours and none other, that you would drive far from us any idols remaining. Even this year, make us a people for your own possession, who are zealous, for your kingdom. I pray this in Jesus name.